Welcome to Zooming In, a project of the Unpopulist. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. For a certain sort of social conservative, Viktor Orban's Hungary is the North Star. The realization of fantasies about how social liberalism can be done away with and trad living elevated to primacy if only the power of a committed executive were turned to that task. On today's episode, I'm joined by Robert Trzinski. He's the editor of Symposium, a journal of liberalism, and writes additional commentary at the Trzinski Letter. And he recently published an essay at The Unpopulist on Orban, DeSantis, and the conservative longing for a world where their social preferences are enforced by the state. What is Orbanism? Ah, that's a good question. Uh, well, Orbanism is, it, it's funny, there's a there's a Hungarian version, from what I, I've been able to tell, there's a Hungarian version, there's an American version. So the Hungarian version is is what the system Viktor Orban, the 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 prime minister of, of Hungary is creating in, in Hungary. And then there's the version of it that's sort of been popularized by the nationalist conservative types, by the uh, sort of uh, Steve Bannon types who are popularizing this as a model to be followed in America. But it, it, the fundamental of it is the idea of using the power of the state to promote conservative values or nationalist values. And in Hungary, it's been a, uh, a matter of him, uh, Viktor Orban, sort of using his power to grab the control of various levers of the state to keep his party and his faction in in a majority and in control and prevent dissent, a very effective dissent. And uh, a lot of it's focused there on control of the press, the fact that um, he's sort of starved out the independent media and made it impossible for there to be any large scale media. So it's sort of like if you had only Fox News, right? And, not, and there's nothing but Fox News and everybody got their news from that. Imagine what the country might look like. That's essentially what he's managed to do. And it's it's partly by, um, you know, in, in, he's done some things in Hungary that, that don't translate to America. So for example, uh, most of the media there is very dependent on advertising from the state, from the government. And so, if you have the government, you know, gives its advertising to the, to the the outlets that are that are friendly, and not to the outlets that are not friendly, then you can see how he exerts a lot of control. It's not as easy to do that in the U.S., but where I think the the model comes over most effectively is what he's done with education, and especially with higher education. And there's a very notorious case in Hungary where he chased out. It was called the Central European University, and this was an academic program, a very well-regarded sort of world-class standard academic program uh, funded by George Soros. But of course, you know, again, another element imported to America, George Soros is the, in, in Orban's worldview, is the ultimate bad guy, the guy plotting to, you know, create this globalist system. And so he made Soros out to be the, the big villain and did various things to sort of harass and, uh uh, put put sorts of legal barriers around the Central European University, and eventually they gave up trying to have it in Budapest. They moved it to Vienna, and in its place, Orban did this thing where he had billions of dollars in state funds that were dedicated to something called the uh, Matthias Grafinis Collegium, which is much lower academic standards, but is very much a nationalist curriculum and uh, promoting nationalist values. So it's this idea of taking control of the media 
taking control of higher education and using it all to promote a consistently nationalist agenda, but then also having a system where basically if you don't go along with the regime, you can't go into business. You can't successfully run a business because you will not, you'll be again harassed or starved out from various kinds of, of state controlled funds. So it sounds like this is just about power. Like the appeal of it to conservatives in the US is they see themselves as no longer holding the commanding heights of the culture. So they whether that's Hollywood or that's education or that's higher education, they see those as irredeemably lefty and a threat to their values. And so this is this just fantasies of we were all Reaganites and you know keep government small and limited when the culture was on our side, but now that it's not, we'd like to use this cudgel to to establish our our dominance over the culture. Right. So the version that's been imported to America is this idea we have to get comfortable using the levers of state power, not being the, you know, we have to get rid of this old small government Reaganism where we're going to you know, have small government and we're going to have less power for government. We need to be comfortable with government having power, but we have to use that power for our conservative ends. And the basic contradiction of it is that, you know, it's the idea that we are a small persecuted minority who's losing power. We're being overwhelmed by the rest of the culture. Therefore, let us <laughs> expand the power of the state and have control over it. Well, how are you going to get control over it if you're a smaller growing minority? And I think really, if to put this in historical context, you have to think in terms of, you know, going back to the 80s and going back to Reagan, if you remember the moral majority, right? This is Jerry Falwell's group, the moral majority. And at the time, they could actually, you know, plausibly have some idea that, yes, we are the majority. We represent the majority view. And now that's clearly no longer the case. I think partly this is a panicked response to the fact that Religious belief is in decline in America, and you can see these these uh, um, uh, these poll numbers of it sort of going off a cliff, starting somewhere in the 1990s. And you could talk about all the reasons why. You know, there's the scandals. Uh, <laughs> I remember the televangelist scandals of the 1990s, uh, and you you have echoes of them up today with Jerry Falwell Jr. You know, that the the this, the copy being uh, degraded somewhat from the original, and. Uh, <laughs> um, they also had the Catholic Church scandals. And so if you look at church, church attendance and church membership, especially for evangelicals and for Catholics, there's this long-term decline. And so they see themselves basically we're going the way of Europe. You know, Europe has most most countries in Europe, especially Western Europe, have become secularized, where that's like 60, 70 percent secular people, people with no particular religious belief, and Christianity is in a minority culturally. Uh, and electorally. And so I think they're sort of panicking at that prospect and making this last ditch attempt to say, well, wait a minute, maybe if we clamp down now, if we seize the levers of power, we could reverse this trend. Um, and I, there is a certain delusional aspect to it, right? This sense of, you know, we're just small and despised minority, so let's, get, let's gain power. Well, you know, you can increase the power of the state, but the fact that you're going to be able to, the ones to use it for your ends is not really the likely outcome. Well, it seems too that this is part of the appeal of Orban's more authoritarian directions of controlling the media and so on. Because one, you know, one problem with 
increasing the power of the state in order to enforce your cultural hegemony is that only works as long as you're in control of the state. Uh, but when you fall out of favor, which inevitably happens in the cycles of a democratic system, you now have an empowered state that the other guys are in charge of, and they can, and and you have set a a standard of enforcing cultural hegemony. So now, why don't they do it too? Um, but Orban is working his his movements in the authoritarian direction are often attempts to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, a permanent dominance. Well, I, I think that's also why you're seeing urbanism is not going to be – I mean, I think there's some fantasies of doing it on the national level. You know, Donald Trump will get back into office and then he'll use this and he'll he'll mandate classical architecture and he'll, uh, you know, create a fund for patriotic education, all these things he, he was going to do before. It's a lot less likely. I mean, it really doesn't make sense to try to do this on the national level because power, you know, there's not enough conservatives. There's, there's not enough to, to maintain that dominance and power. But you can see the um, appeal this has on the state level, that if you're saying, well, I'm governor of Florida, to pick the example at hand here, I'm governor of Florida, and you can think that in Florida, yeah, we can, we have a conservative majority. We have the hope of maintaining a conservative, a dominant conservative majority over a long period of time. So we can implement this. We can say, okay, you know, we're going to seize control of the uh, the local district that controls Disney's infrastructure, you know, their water and sewer and police and fire and all that sort of thing. We're going to seize control of that, put my cronies in charge. So Disney will have to answer to us. We get to tell them what to do and they can't have all this uh, woke stuff and all the homosexual stuff going on supposedly in, in their, in their, in their TV shows and in their, in their movies. And we can take over the university system and we can ban CRT and we can do this in the schools. We could do that. The idea that you could take this model of control uh, of authoritarianism from uh, from Hungary and apply it here in the the U.S. it makes sense on the state level if you're in a a conservative state where you have a strong dominant party and uh, unfortunately in Florida you have a an opposition party that's in a great deal of uh, has long been in a great deal of disarray. Well, and this seems to get to then the. The fantasy is about DeSantis because DeSantis is the standard bearer of this view and his rise among possible presidential candidates in 2024 is largely driven by he can do to the U.S. what he's doing to Florida. But does this mean – you know? so we've seen, we've seen these debates like who would be worse as a nominee? Should we be more worried about a Trump or should we be more worried about a DeSantis? But this would seem to push in – I don't know if it pushes against being worried about – like thinking Trump is not a big deal, but that DeSantis is much less likely to be able to accomplish as president what he's accomplishing in Florida. Oh, I think he definitely is. He's much less likely to be able to do – to replicate this on the national on the national scale. He, he will try. I do think the the Trump versus DeSantis thing is one of those sort of like um, you know choose the form of the destroyer, right? I guess to go back to my I've got to go back to my 1980s pop culture reference where it's younger kids look it up, um, but you know it's this idea of you know you, you somebody you have you have you've got two people who are both I think a danger to the the liberal American system to the to the, to the system of a free society of uh, of government being out of the business of dictating. Uh, what you're supposed to read and what you're supposed to believe and and 
and also respect for uh, for for voting and for majority rule. And so you have two people who are both a threat to that. And the question is, well, which kind of threat is going to be worse? And I I, I think it's a somewhat unprofitable question to ask because it's I think it's enough to establish well they're both a threat and they're both the same kind of threat. And then within that, I think you know the case is simply that well Donald Trump I think is more erratic. He's more likely to call for as he's just done in the last week to call for a mob to to turn out and uh, uh, a, a violent mob to turn out to defend him from from having to face legal consequences for his actions or to overthrow or overturn an election result or what have you. So he's more likely to to do the sort of big extravagant um, uh, sort of crazy things. But DeSantis is more likely to be more methodical and systematic and follow things through with the self-discipline that Trump lacked, <laughs> uh, notably in office. Is there a problem too with this vision that it sometimes feels like the conservatives and especially like the national conservatives, their vision of we're going to return to a trad society underestimates the amount of pluralism that even exists within their circles that it seems like we have a, a very different world for a, um, a Hazoni, a very conservative Jewish guy, the world that he would institute if he had the the full on cudgel the state versus like whatever the very weird world that like a Rod Dreher would want. <laughs> and and so if they seize power, they're just gonna end up, they're end up fighting, fighting amongst other, themselves yes. <laughs> once they have once they banished all LGBT people. Like they can all agree on that. Well, you know, one of the uh, odd things to me is is that there, you know, a number of the leading nationalist conservatives who want uh, integralism. I want this the state to to get involved in religion. Are Catholics and traditionally in America, Catholics have been on the on the brunt end of government involvement in in the state. Now, one, it's it's an old story that that sort of has been forgotten because it all happened like fifty to one hundred and fifty years ago. But there were literal like riots in places like Boston and I think Michigan or Indiana over public schools. And when they first had the first systems of public schools that were put into place, they often had religious instruction in the public schools. But the religious instruction used the King James Bible. It was Protestant religious instruction. And it was very deliberately created to take all these Catholic kids, all the Irish kids and all the Italian kids who were coming in who were raised Catholic, and trying to sort of pull them over and give them uh, Protestant religious instruction. And there were actual riots over this, that you know when you had religious instruction in the public schools, it was used as a cudgel by Protestants against Catholics in exactly the way you're sort of talking about, that they're fighting against each other. And so a lot of the, you know, the solution to those school wars, as they were called, was in America the solution was let's not have religious instruction in school let's let's have secular schools and let's not let's get the schools out of, let's get the schools out of religion you put the schools back into religion which is one of the integralist ideas and you go back to having exactly those kinds of those kinds of conflicts and disagreements one of the interesting things has been the particular focus on education because prior to this latest rise of like deeply illiberal views on the right under Trump, we had school choice was the primary argument you saw among many people on the right, that we need to, the, the solution to ideological uniformity, indoctrination, whatever it happens to be in elementary and secondary education was school choice, freedom, let people go where they want to go. But 
now it seems like what we're seeing is that that was always that wasn't a principled position. It was more just school choice was a way for us to escape what we saw as a leftist controlled education establishment. But now, in part due to COVID, like COVID upsetting a lot of parents and bringing sweeping in conservative school boards, um, superintendents, and so on, we have an opportunity to remake public public education in our image. And so even that commitment to to freedom has has largely disappeared. Um, and even people who in the past were very good on educational freedom seem to be pretty silent about what DeSantis is up to. Well, I, I think there has been, I just saw some news about there's a, a bill going through in Florida for school choice. And I am hoping that one of the things that emerge from this will be that maybe some people on the left will start to see the virtues of school choice, right? If, if DeSantis is controlling, if Ron DeSantis is controlling your public schools and saying you can't have uh, certain things taught about history of racism in the U.S. and about segregation and what have you, the the great appeal of this would be well you can send your kids to a private school that will teach them all the things all the values you want you want to promote um so i'm hoping that will sort of break you know public schools or school choice out from being this sort of partisan coded thing where uh you know only republicans are a favorite and democrats all have feel like they have to be against it but again it's this idea that um you know we we have given up on saying freedom and pluralism is is the answer and said, no, the answer is for my side to seize control. And it, you know, there's a long history of this. The old, the old saying is uh, free speech for me, but not for thee. Uh, the ACLU partly is an example of this, that uh, the left was very much in favor of free speech when free speech was uh, violations of free speech involved things like putting communists in jail. You know, when, when they felt they were the targets of censorship, they were very much in favor of free speech the more they control the institutions and the more they that other people, you know, people who don't share their views become the targets, the less concerned they become about censorship. And that's that's a longstanding trend that, you know, how how you feel about freedom from government control depends on how much you feel that your side and people sympathetic to you are going to have control over the state. But in a pluralistic society like America, in a, in a diverse society where nobody has, I mean, James Madison designed it this way on purpose, right? It's this, you know, Federalist Number 10, go read it. The whole point here is he said, well, what happens if somebody gets a majority and that majority decides to run roughshod over the rights of, of, of individuals? And he says, well, the protection against that is we're going to have a country so large and so diverse, so many different interests and factions that none of them will none of them will be big enough to get a majority and combine together to to take away the rights of other people. And I think that is our protection on the federal level. And that's why my concern is more. Uh, and I think why we're seeing a lot of battles right now from abortion to education to um Things like this, DeSantis versus Disney, using the power of government against a private corporation. We're going to see a lot more of that happening on the state level because that's where you know the, the you're more likely to be able to get a majority that can be panicked into. You know, I think they've got sort of a. a I recognize a lot of what's going down in Florida, by the way, as sort of an Anita Bryant style gay panic, right? You, you sort of transplanted from the 60s and 70s and brought forward into the 21st century. And this idea that, oh, you know, we, we're going to have these sort of church lady groups uh, uh, filing suits or, or making complaints against the schools that, oh, you can't carry this dirty book. On, uh, this is a, 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 a obscene book. You can't have that in the school library. 
it's very recognizable as this sort of old-fashioned sort of gay panic transported into the 21st century. And you can get that to get some traction in some states, but you're not going to be able to do that on the national level. Does the fact that this works on the state level but not on the national level, or it's at least, we'll say, harder on the national level, mean that there is something of a natural check against its spread or or I guess a, a ceiling of how bad it can get even on the state level? Because I'm thinking like Florida gets a lot of money from Disney, right? And it would be hard for Disney to move to a different state because it owns a lot of expensive real estate in, in Florida. But if things got bad enough, it could. Uh, or and, and it seems like a lot of the largest corporations and a lot of the centers of economic dynamism and growth in this country are much more sympathetic to, if not outright progressive social views, then certainly not DeSantis-style social views. And, and so it seems like there are, there are strong economic mechanisms for punishing this stuff if it gets too far out of hand. Yeah, economic, and also there's the courts too, because uh, you know the, the the interesting thing is you know no no one side of this debate has a monopoly on the on the courts. You could have you know a majority in the Supreme Court, but on the lower courts, especially there's there's a lot more diversity. And one of the things DeSantis has already run up against is that there's the old fashioned Reaganites are still out there. Yeah, the Reaganite conservatives are still out there. Um, David French was arguing arguing to me recently that he he says he wants to make the case about how how the federal society saves America saved America in in 2020 because a lot of the rulings that went against Trump were from federal society conservative judges and the same has been true for some of the rulings I mean a whole bunch of DeSantis put into place this Stop Woke Act which is supposed to prevent people from teaching critical race theory or teaching ideas he didn't like, even in, in private corporate um, corporate training seminars. And this is scored blatantly unconstitutional. And a lot of the rulings that came against it were from old-fashioned conservative judges, you know, Federalist Society-type judges, who were still following that sort of Reaganite originalism. And, real, you know, it, it was very obvious and blatant that this was a violation. And, you know, one of the things we're talking about here is, is one of the techniques that somebody like DeSantis uses is he will pass a law. And this has happened in Texas. It's happened in a number of different places. It, the left does this too, by the way, uh, where they control things. Is they'll pass a law at the state level that they pretty much know is going to be struck down on the federal level. It's unconstitutional. The courts are going to strike it down. But the idea is, you know, it's like the old-fashioned messaging legislation, right, where you you propose a bill that you know is never going to pass, but you get to go back home and pander to your base back home by saying, "Well, I proposed this bill," and it doesn't matter that it never had any chance of 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 getting of getting passed. Same thing happens here. You you with loud fanfare, you sign a bill doing the, to stop wokeness in your state. Knowing that you know a large chunk of it is going to get struck down by the federal courts, but by the time that happens, that's months later, and that's those guys out there in Washington who did that, and you still you, you still have had this opportunity to pander to your base back home. Now the problem is you then create this sort of this precedent of anything I can get away with is okay, and I should be pushing the bounds of what I can get away with, and also you have somebody like DeSantis who clearly has his eye on higher office has his eye on being the guy who's going to be able to appoint the judges on the federal level in the future, who would then, you know, to the extent there is a conservative faction in the judiciary that would embrace these things, he can put them on the bench. So that's the more long-term danger. 
there's a point in in the essay that you published at the Unpopulist that I rather liked that's related to this and and the courts where um, you're talking about David Azarad saying we need to be conservatives need to be comfortable basically using whatever power we can get our hands on and then adds within the confines of the rule of law. And I like you say this is a self-contradiction because the rule of law implies the very impartiality in the use of power that he is rejecting. Um, and and that seems to speak to, I think, partly why the courts are rejecting a lot of this, but ultimately like this, this fundamental problem. And so I want to ask about, it seems one lesson we can draw from what's happening is that a lot of the people who were who spoke in the language of freedom and liberty, free enterprise, and so on, that wasn't a principled commitment. It was an expedient commitment because they saw that as the best way to advance their cultural and economic interests. And now they have turned. And that, that tends to have that's not an isolated phenomenon on the right. The left does similar things. And so in that kind of environment where we see this happen and, and it can – in these ways where it just runs in really awful directions as we're seeing in Florida, what do those of us who – you know, maybe we're in the decided minority but have an actual principled commitment to liberalism and pluralism, even if it means people are doing weird stuff that we're not into um, – how do we how do we make our case in a world like that where it seems like people aren't really interested in the principles? Well, well, one thing I think we need to point out is that a lot of these principles of you know institutional neutrality and this idea of you know the government will stay out of the way and and, and allow these different ideas to flourish and different you know people to have different lifestyles and that sort of thing. A lot of this neutrality was not something that some that somebody adopted because they wanted to. It, a lot of this came out historically from all these battles being fought to a standstill. I mean, religious liberty, the history of religious liberty is really a history of failed religious conflict in Europe, especially in, 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 in England in particular and in Europe in general, that you had this knockdown battles, Protestants versus Catholics, people killing each other uh, in, in on a very large scale, you know, long long wars that were fought over it. And eventually what happened is they they got, got themselves to such a standstill. They said, okay, look, we can't settle this by just having one side kill everybody on the other side, by having the, the state impose something and and totally dominate. And, you know, religious liberty was adopted as, and, and, and governmental neutrality in religion was adopted as the last resort, <laughs> as the thing nobody wanted, but as a result of the fact that if we let this be a, just a conflict, a war of all against all, it ends up being much more destructive. So I think, and I think that you know, hopefully we can arrive at a um, a less bloody and and less traumatic version of that, which is going back to James, Mad James Madison. You know, he anticipated, he created the system so that you'd have one faction trying to get its way, having to deal with oh wait, but then another faction is out there, and and neither faction really can get enough. Uh, of a majority enough power to totally impose its views, and eventually the you know once they've exhausted that effort, they eventually have to decide okay you know we're going to we have to the stand that the meeting point the neutralizing point in the middle is let's have the government be neutral. I mean I mentioned the school wars that's a great example. Instead of saying well let's have the Protestants control the schools so they're against they can they can indoctrinate all the Catholic kids, the eventual truce that comes to is let's have the schools stay out of religion 
and just focus on teaching. And I think that that is the case we're making essentially uh, for why you have these neutral principles in the first place. And we're probably gonna have to relearn that a little bit, but you know, the, the history is on our side is the way I'd put it. Thank you for listening to Zooming In at the Unpopulist. If you enjoy this show, please take a moment to review us in Apple Podcasts and also check out Reimagining Liberty, our sister podcast, The Unpopulist, where I explore the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. Zooming In is produced by Landry Ayers and is a project of The Unpopulist. <laughs>